Let's open our Bibles to the book of Mark. Mark 10, 32 to 45. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with a baptized baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those who whom it has been prepared and when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you, you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jim. Appreciate it. Well, good morning again. I'm thrilled you're here to open the Word of God as we are in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 10. And I hope you have, I hope you have expectantly arrived knowing that when we gather for worship, we get to hear from the living God. We get to hear from Him, the maker of your soul, the giver of the breath of life, the Savior of the world. We get to hear from this morning. When we gather, an otherworldly uh, meeting takes place. We gather as a, as a gospel outpost. I don't know if you saw a quote I posted on social media this week about the gathering for worship. Here's what it said. It's no small thing to realize that when a Christian shows up, God shows up. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? So when the church gathers, it gathers as a collection of people in whom God dwells. That's you and, and me. God inhabits the gathered church because these scattered worshipers are all temples who together make a greater temple. When the temple gathers, something otherworldly takes place. It's an outpost of hope in a dying world, a fellowship of resurrected sinners whose presence in the world is a foretaste of a greater transformation to come. Don't ever view Sunday morning as just kind of showing up to church, 
When we gather, we are the ransomed and redeemed with God in our midst. Well, this morning, we are, as I said, hitting the high point, I would say, the high point of Jesus' teaching in the Gospel of Mark on true greatness. As he repeats a pattern we've seen through Mark 8 through 10, it's been this section where we've been seeing Jesus teach on discipleship. And he's had this pattern where he speaks about his death. The disciples respond, not so great. (laughs) And then he gives an amazing teaching, a really pointed teaching on discipleship. We've seen a pattern throughout those chapters. You know, at Bethany Church, we are, we say this from time to time, we are firm believers in explaining the why behind something. Explaining the why behind what, what we do or what we believe and why we do this and why we do, do that. And so really that means all questions here are valid and safe. We want to explain why we do what we do. Well, Jesus this morning, he gives us the why behind his death. He gives us the why behind really why he came and why he, he, he died. And it's really the linchpin verse of the entire gospel. You heard it uh, read. Here it is again. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Can you imagine for a moment if Jesus didn't give us the why behind his death? It's really the thing that so many people struggle with, with the gospel. Maybe that's you today, thinking about Jesus, exploring Jesus. The why behind his death is a reason why so many people struggle with Christianity. Because without the true why, you have to explain his death for some other reason. Without the true why, maybe his death was just a sad failure. Maybe it was a a revolution that just got off the rails and got out of their hands and they sort of lost it and he ended up dying. A cosmic blunder, you might say. Or just this, uh, you know, maybe had meaning for them at that time. A historically kind of frozen gesture that has no meaning beyond the first disciples. Maybe they thought, oh, he died for us, but it stopped there. And not to mention, if we don't have that, we miss out on the, the meaning of our salvation. Because the why does have ramifications further than just the first disciples all the way up into history, and actually all the way back before the the disciples. As ramifications for our discipleship, our call to service, our call to humility, and how you and I should define this word, greatness. How do you define greatness, we're going to ask today. So this morning, we're going to look at four principles, four principles of clear greatness that come out of the why of his death. Because as we're going to see, we're going to talk about our hearts can be just like James and John's hearts. We can struggle with the same thing as they misunderstand, as they wrestle with, and as they resist Jesus' idea of what true greatness is. We struggle with that too. The true greatness comes from the suffering servanthood of Christ. But as we look in the discovery of the why behind that, the great ransom that Jesus Christ paid for us, our anxious, our skittish hearts are going to find true security, out of which comes humble servanthood. 
We're going to find that today. So grab your Bible. Hopefully you got it there. Have it open to Mark 10. Have your outline open as well. We got some fill-ins there for you, those of you who like to take notes as we look at these four principles. Here's our first one. The servant walks the road to death. The servant walks the road to death. Pick it up with me in chapter 10, verse 32 again. They were on the road. There's the road. Going up to where? Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them, saying, what was going to happen? See, we're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Here they go. They are on the road They are are, are making their way up to Jerusalem, making their way to usher in the kingdom of God. So picture it in your mind. Here they are. And there's Jesus. Of course they were afraid. Of course they were. When amazed, they they think true greatness lies, as they have all along in this gospel, They think true greatness is going to rise with the powerful overthrow of the authority structures of Rome that is occupying their land. And in their mind, they're on their way to take back what is rightfully theirs. But what do we see? You see, it's just a simple little detail. Who's out front of the pack? Jesus. Jesus is out front. He's walking out front. He's leading the way. He's showing them the way, determined to to, to blaze a trail for humanity at the cross. It's reminiscent of Isaiah's passage of the obedient servant from Isaiah 50 who's going to save Jerusalem or save Israel from sin as he said this, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore I've not been disgraced. Therefore I've set my face like a flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Set my face like a flint. It means it speaks of a, a, a determination that this servant has. A a resolute mission to go and to ransom God's people. He's counted the cost. He's heading towards Jerusalem. He probably even had this Isaiah song in his mind as he walked and led those disciples. And Luke says at another place, he set his face towards Jerusalem. Just like this passage. He set his face. It's a victory parade. But not like the one we would expect. Definitely not like one like the disciples would expect. What do victory parades look like in our culture? What do they look like? What, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you think of when you hear a victory, victory parade? The hometown team, right, has won the Super Bowl, and they come back to their town for the victory parade, and, and what does it look like? There's cheering, and there's, there's a fanfare, and acclaim, and they're just there celebrating the, the defeat Or think of a presidential victor stepping onto the hometown stage and the crowd roars. We celebrate dominance, defeat of the opponent by might, strength, and skill. We seek glory and honor. That's what victory parades look like in our culture. Not this one. This one looks a little different. But we do it in our personal lives too. How many of us like to have it pointed out when we're wrong? (laughs) 
How many of us are quick to seek forgiveness when we know we've wronged someone? We do it too. We have trouble with his idea of greatness. Well, here they come. This, yeah, scraggly, you might call them, under-resourced, ill-equipped band of disciples. They're going to conquer Jerusalem. That's where they're going. I'd be afraid too. No weapons. Uh, no resources or army behind him. We, we, we would misunderstand too. I picture Jesus out front and these guys just kind of walking along behind him. You know, just kind of, kind of bumbling along behind him. Where are they going? What, 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 are, you, what are you doing, Jesus? They totally misunderstand and Maybe you do too. And so that's our follow-up question. Do you understand his mission? As he's walking out front, do you understand his mission? Because clearly the disciples didn't. And so he explains it to them in the most explicit terms yet in the gospel. He explains to them why we're heading there and why I'm out front, walking in front of you guys. So he pulls the 12 aside, doesn't he? We heard that read there. He pulls them aside as he does. There was others there probably too, not just the 12. But he pulls the 12 aside, his special men that he loves and cares for. And he says, guys, the son of man, which is that title from Daniel of the God-man, this amazing, glorious figure, divine, eternal rule, where he says, the Son of Man, guys, he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles and the Jews, and they will physically torture and kill him, is what he says. And it's almost as if it's an add-on there. It says, and three days later, he'll rise. It's almost like it's a little add-on there. But who delivered him over? Who delivered him up? Well, the Gentiles to the Jews, but who delivered them up to the, to the Gentiles? Who, who did it? God. God did it. God delivered him up. And so at the end of that little phrase there, he could say, and God is going to raise him up. He won't stay dead. God had a great why behind his death. A great why behind the death of Jesus Christ. But his mission, make no mistake, we hear it here, we see it there, his mission was to die. That was his mission. That's what he was out front for. The same Isaiah passage, one verse earlier, says this, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Such specific prophecies that he fulfilled so many years later. It wasn't an add-on. It wasn't plan B. From the foundations of the world, Christ was ordained to die. That's why he came. It wasn't a mistake, and God sovereignly, providentially orchestrated the entire thing. It's why Jesus could say, and I will rise again too, because he knew it. It's why he came. Isn't that a challenging message to share, though? If we're called to share the gospel and to spread this message, yeah, well, I, I follow Jesus. My Lord's greatest victory, his, his greatest triumph, well, he died. And he died on a cross. And he died shamefully. But, but he rose again. You see, if you, if you don't understand, if you don't believe, if you don't know the why behind his, his coming and his death, it does sound crazy. If you don't understand the why behind that death, 
it does sound a little crazy. And that's why it's so confusing. And maybe to you today too. You're kind of like, I don't get it. Die for me? Die, why? Or maybe today you feel like one of the 12 or one of the ones kind of falling behind him as he walks ahead of you in your own life. And you're following Jesus along from the back and you picture as you're kind of traveling down the road with them as they were and you're saying, where are you taking me, Jesus? Where are we going? What are you going to ask of me if death was your road? Remember this, God had a sovereign plan in that death. He has a sovereign plan in every aspect of your life too. If he could do it with Christ, he can do it with you. He wasn't improvising there. It was his plan all along to walk out front and die. Let's keep going so we can get to the why. The first principle was that one. The great servant walks the road to death. That was our first one. Here's our second principle. If the first is true, then we as servants should shape our world to his work. Here's the point. The servant is to shape his world, her world, our world to Jesus's work. We're to shape our life to Jesus's life. Are you the type of person who can have something go in one ear, and what's the phrase? Out the other. Ask my wife about that later today. I can be there, and she can say to me, um, you know, Jeff, honey, take out the trash, and as you do, can you bring up my purse from the car? Okay, yeah, uh-huh, sure. And I come back upstairs 10 minutes later. Did you get my purse? Huh? What? Excuse me? Oh, uh, oh Yeah. I mean, it's funny in some way, and some of your wives are like, it's not funny. (laughs) But the cause is, for me, that most of us, and even some of us, have sometimes trouble seeing beyond kind of right here, the end of my nose. It goes in one ear and out the other. We can tend to live in these claustrophobic kingdoms of one. And so sometimes somebody comes in on it, I have a lot of trouble seeing and hearing and remembering. We're concerned with comfort. We are. We're concerned with ease. We just sometimes, I sometimes, I just want to be left alone sometimes, right? Well, John and James give us a splendid example of in one ear, out the other. Jesus, the one they loved, the one they cared for, they're following, a just, he just revealed to them his gruesome death for the third time. And James and John respond, Rabbi, do for us whatever we want. Fulfill my one great wish. Magic genie, give me what I command. Not the best way to start a prayer, is it? Not the best way to start a prayer. And technically, Matthew records that they didn't even do it. They actually sent, you know, their mom out front. Matthew records that mom came and actually asked this question for them. And you would think Jesus would respond, get those numbskulls over here now. Grab them by the ear, mom. Get them over here. Get them over here. But do you see how slow to anger Jesus is? I just told him that he's gonna, they're going to spit on him. And flog him and kill him. And he asks, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? 
so gracious. I would have been like, katong, you know, knocking skulls. And he asked them, they say, let us sit in those places of authority after we knock out the teeth of those Romans. Let us sit in those places. You know what they want? They want the corner office with the view. That's what they're asking for. The corner office with the view. You see, they wanted Jesus, they wanted Jesus to shape his work, his mission, to their idea of the world. To their idea of success, of greatness, of might, of power. They wanted Jesus to shape his work to their view of the world of authority, of glory. They were right. They were right on one hand. Jesus was about to walk into his greatest moment of glory. They just had no idea what it would be. He wouldn't have two prominent cabinet members sitting at his side on his throne. It'd be two criminals hanging on either side, bleeding out with him. That's what it would be. They didn't didn't know that. They didn't see that. Before we we scoff at these two, how could they do it? How could they not see it? It begs the question for us, what would you ask of Jesus? What would you ask of Jesus? Or or what do you ask of Jesus on a day-to-day basis? Because James and John are there for us to see. Or as you think of the heart behind your questions, Do you sound a bit like, Jesus, just give me what I want. Just give me what I want. Just give it to me. They clearly missed it. But the question to follow up on this one is, what are we missing right now? Because they missed it then. Each and every one of us, what are we missing right now? What What are you missing right now in your own life? What place is Jesus maybe asking you to give where you're holding on? Give for others? What place do you, are you holding on to your preference, your priority, whatever it might be that you're, is your supposed need? And thinking, I desperately want to shape the work of Jesus to my view of the world as they did. Because the way of the cross, the way of sacrifice, it clearly goes against our natural heart desires, even as it did for them. And frankly, if I'm honest, there are many times I'd just rather be served than to serve someone else. We can be addicted to comfort, can't we? <laughs> and addicted to ease and deathly allergic of inconvenience in our lives. This is what it means to live in our uh, media-saturated entertainment-saturated, technology-saturated culture. All those distractions, let me shape your work to my world. When Jesus wants us to shape our world, your world, your life to his work. Because that's what he points the disciples to. He tells the disciples, you don't know. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink my cup? He said, it's kind of strange words, isn't it? Can you drink my cup and have my Baptism, it's kind of weird language. What is he talking about? They're powerful metaphors for suffering. The cup in the Bible is almost always associated with God's judgment, his wrath being poured out, his punishment being poured out, the cup. Baptism here is probably just this picture of 
What does the word even mean? To plunge somebody under, to be plunged under. Jesus is saying, I am going to be plunged under in suffering. Baptized into suffering. Overwhelmed and flooded to pay your ransom. Jesus graciously and firmly asks, he's so gracious, can you drink that with me? Can Can you be the one to bridge the gap between God and sinful humanity? Can you do it? Can you pay their price, James and John? My passion isn't isn't to give you the easy life, James and John. It's to free you from yourself. It's to free you from sin and death, from condemnation. And he does assure them there in our text, he does assure them they will face a similar fate, a similar cup, he says, in baptism. He says, yeah, you too. You'll drink my cup and be baptized too. But it's clear they don't understand because they're overconfident, aren't they, in their abilities? to grasp glory and power as they say, we're able, Jesus. We got this. We're able. We are able, Jesus. How hard it must be, because if anybody would have seen it, I mean, how hard it must be to grasp, to understand the magnitude of the cross and and this absolutely upside-down kingdom Jesus is setting up. It, It must be really hard to grasp this. And it is. I mean, James and John just heard him teach three times. They've watched him serve along the road. And to gain victory with Jesus wasn't going to be a victory by the sword, but the victory by the cross. And it would transform them, though. And they finally did get it, because James would be the first apostle martyred. His act says this, about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James the brother of John with the sword. That's not the corner office, is it? That's not the corner office. But he was willing. And he ended up dying for Jesus. There's his cup. There's his baptism. That's James. And John, we know, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, was exiled, faced great suffering and persecution. By that time, they had. They had internalized that, oh, Jesus wants to shape me. I don't get to shape him. They had to have gotten it. They died for it. They suffered for it. They became our third great principle of serving. The servant of the Lord becomes the servant of all. The servant of the Lord becomes a servant of all. As we see this follow-up to this story, the ten are frustrated, aren't they? They come back uh, to the two, James and John. They're frustrated. They're irritated with James and John. Not because they asked the question. It's just that the the two beat them to it. That's why they're irritated. Not because they asked the question. They just beat them to it. Or their mom actually beat them to it. Jesus gives them his strongest lesson on discipleship and his response. Look at 42 with me. He says, And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever be great among you must be your servant, and whoever be first among you must be slave of all. He defines greatness for them, doesn't he? Because you've got ideas of greatness. You want to shape my mission to your world. It doesn't look like anything their world has ever seen when he defines it. Nothing. 
nothing. And it certainly doesn't look like anything in our world. He points to the leaders of the age for them. I mean, think of, a moment, think of our political, cultural climate, just for even a second. What, regardless of what side of the aisle you are on, do you know politicians have been historically called servants of the people? I mean, the sentiment is great. The roots are Judeo-Christian, but the human heart craves power. As Lord Acton said, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. We crave it. But how about the church? How do we live? How do we define greatness? That's our follow-up question. How do you really define greatness? Because how you define it, how I define it, will direct the entire course of your life. How you define greatness. And we struggle with it in the church too. Sometimes, you know who struggles with it the most? Pastors. Leaders. Jesus points to them. Leaders struggle with it. But we all do too. Here's some hard words from David Garland. Sometimes it's fun to let somebody else say the hard words. Here's a quote from David Garland. He says, The gospel has not eliminated pride and spiritual competition from our midst. Still find people in the church who put meeting their ego needs before meeting their obligations as disciples. The cross is central to discipleship, but many soft sell or neglect that aspect in favor of a more popular brand of discipleship. One that offers fulfillment and satisfies our material needs for stuff. That can only breed selfishness and competition. This text allows us to see our own pettiness mirrored in the pettiness of these disciples. While Jesus is talking about all that he's to give, disciples come up with a shopping list of all they want to get. See what's going on here with these guys? They've got an agenda, an item, a list, a shopping list. Those are tough words. I mean, how did James, then did James and John go then from being petty, asking for the corner office when Jesus spoke of dying to be, to, and, and himself and called his disciples to be servants of all and slaves of all? How did they do it? They had to see their greater need. They had to be freed from themselves. They had to be ransomed. That's how. It's our fourth and final principle. Here it is. Only the great ransom can, only this ransom can make this a reality. For James, for John, for you, for me, that we could be called to suffer and serve. Only this ransom we're going to look at now could make this a reality. Nothing else could purchase this. Nothing else could transform humanity like this. Here's the final verse, the linchpin verse of this passage and this book and really everything Jesus is about. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom. It is a strange word, isn't it? We, it's not, we don't really use this word in our culture anymore. About the only place you can hear it now is in a Liam Neeson movie. It's about the only place you can now hear this word ransom. It's a strange word. It's about, um, you know, kind of somebody gets taken 
or uh, kidnapped or, or stolen, and there's a, a ransom that needs to be paid to get somebody back who's been taken captive. But here, let's look at Jesus' words now. For, he says, for, for even the Son of Man, God in flesh who deserves to be waited on and honored and served, for even he came to serve, to give to give. He willingly gave it up. Not forced, not taken by force, not plan B, not a, oh, it's, this has gotten off the rails. No, to give. He willingly gave it up. It wasn't taken, but he laid his life down, he's saying, to be a ransom, a payment for, in place of, instead of, as a substitute for you, a switching of places, a ransom for you. It's a big term, but the theological term is, it's big, substitutionary atonement. It really means just this, paying something in your place. It's simple when you define it in that term. It's paying something in your place. Jesus paid, ransom means, the huge, eternal, cosmic debt you owed to God. Not to Satan, to God. Some have mistakenly thought through the church we were purchased back from Satan, as if we were Satan's. No. Bringing you back, redeeming you from slavery to sin and death. That's what that verse means. That's what happened at the cross. This is the point of Christianity. This is the big why. This is what causes so much disagreement amongst so many people when they look at Jesus. In the minds of modern people, when they think of what? A, a bloody cross? Come on. That's just some bloodthirsty uh, Old Testament idea or gods of the past, the Greek gods, you know, demanding a blood payment? I believe in a God of love who would never do that, some might say. Never demand I, I, I face the penalty for my sins? I mean, if he's really loving, wouldn't he just let it all go? That's love, right? Just let it all go. Demand a ransom? But we don't see, maybe you don't see today even that he didn't just die because God is so wrathful. He died because God is also so loving. He's so loving. Let's dwell on this for a minute. This idea of love at the cross. Think about the love in your own life you've experienced. Any love that's been really worth much of anything or that's moved you, changed you, it's always been a sacrificial kind of love, hasn't it? That got to your heart, you know, that really kind of moved you. Or think of it the other way, it, those you love. It's easy to love someone, isn't it, who's got their life all put together, isn't it? It's really easy, isn't it? Somebody's got their life all put together. Not many problems, not much drama, not much emotional baggage. You have those in your life. They're good friends. Keep them. <laughs> but it doesn't cost a lot. It doesn't demand much. They don't really have any, many burdens for us to bear. It's just an easy love. Now think about for a moment the people in your life that are hard to love. The needy, the troubled, the helpless, the emotionally broken person, if you're going to love them good, love them well, it's always going to cost you something, isn't it? Always. 
you'll always take some of their, well, a lot of their stuff on, won't you? And it will be burdensome, won't it? It'll be really hard. And it can be exhausting. You take on their junk, you take on their problems, and then you fill them up with your love, your care, your concern. It's almost like you, you take a punch for them every time you're with them. You finish the conversation, they say, thanks, I feel so much better. And you're like, I feel like a train hit me. You know, that's kind of that kind of love. You are going to make some kind of substitutionary sacrifice. Maybe every, every time you're with them. And anyone who's ever had a real loving impact on your life has done this for you, haven't they? They've done this for you. When I was in the ninth and 10th grade, I went to a, uh, a Christian high school, which gives a little context for this. Um, and we had this uh, great English teacher. Her name was Mrs. Novak. Best teacher I ever had. She was a gem at that school and a gem to those students. Mrs. Novak, the English teacher. Now, Mrs. Novak, she made a huge difference in all kinds of students' lives. We got out of school at 2.35, something like that, but her door was never locked. It was always open, always open, and it was not uncommon to pass by her room after school and see students in her room just sitting there, just sitting there talking with her for sometimes up to an hour after school. She probably had grading to do. She probably had things. She probably had, she had a family at home. She had things she had to do, but she would just do it. She would just sit there. She would listen to all this high school trauma, you know, just all that stuff, these problems, these breakups, these things. But, and she didn't patronize us. She could have. You're 15. You're, you're heartbroken, you know. She really listened and really cared and took a lot of this student's junk on. My own life in particular, though, I spent hours talking to her hours about my fears, my parents' divorce at 15, real stuff, my anxieties, my disappointments, and she just absorbed it, substituted herself for me. How do I know it transformed me? Ten years after I was um, out of high school, I'd, I had lost touch with uh, Mrs. Novak, and it was in my church, it was the, uh, I was in my early 20s, 20-something, 10 years, I hadn't talked to her in a long time. It was a Sunday I stood up, knees shaking, hands sweaty to preach my first sermon ever at the church I was serving at. And I stood up to preach, and there in the second row was Mrs. Novak, just sitting there in the second row. She knew somebody that was at our church and found out, how do I know? I almost lost it right there. I got to preach, I was like, where Dave is, and I almost lost it. I just almost lost it. It was one who had sacrificed so much for me, took on so much of my junk, my suffering, my pain. Wouldn't it make sense that Jesus Christ would show his love with that ultimate substitutionary sacrifice? Isn't that how love works in every one of our lives? It absolutely makes sense. 
and all that junk, it can't just be overlooked. We can't do that on this level. How would God do that on this level? It's not loving just to go, eh. He said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what happened to James and John. That's what happens to us when we see what he did when he substituted himself for us. He freed us to serve as we're humbled by the death of Christ, his ransom. So here's our final question. Have you been ransomed? Have you been ransomed? Do you know it? Do you believe it? Do you understand it? Don't miss that today. Or maybe today you're seeing it with fresh eyes for the first time, getting a fresh insight into the why. Why did he do it? Here's the end of it. Here's the last of it. Here's why he did it. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and a priest to our God. There's the ransom. That's why. Oh, but one more thing. And they shall reign on this earth. It may look really humble now, God may ask you to do some really hard things for him. He may ask you to sacrifice and give things up to follow him as a disciple. He, not may, he will. But here's the end. That's the end of the matter. That's the why someday we'll stand with him and reign. And then you'll get to see him in the second row. <laughs> you'll get to see him in the second row. Let's pray. Lord, we are, I hope, eternally grateful. We just want to understand the ransom even a little more today, God, we ask. Even a little more. What you did for us, what you've done for us, what you continue to do for us as you placed yourself in our place. You took on our junk. You've taken on our sin. You've taken on our rebellion. You took on James and John who stood there in your face, not understanding, asking for the corner office. And now they see you, Lord. Now they've experienced the why. Lord, we know we need you daily to walk that sight, uh, without sight of you, to walk in faith. So we ask you, strengthen our faith today. Give someone new faith today. Let us walk out of here as those who know the why behind Jesus' death and live humble lives of servant sacrifice for you, Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.